Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Citarella. Today, I'm speaking with Lee Phillips, who is the co-author of the highly acclaimed book, The People's Republic of Walmart, How the World's Biggest Corporations Are Laying the Foundation for Socialism. Longtime listeners may be familiar with this very influential text, released in 2019 from Verso Books. Lee Phillips is a science writer and political journalist whose work has appeared in Nature, The New Scientist, Science Magazine, The Guardian, Jacobin Magazine, and many, many others. Keep an eye out for his upcoming Substack. You frequently talk about this term, deaths per kilowatt hour, judging how safe a certain energy source is. When people are installing solar panels, someone can just, out of sheer accident, fall off of a roof during the installation process. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say high probability, but it is could happen for sure. Maybe this is a worthwhile segue to talk about some of the dangers compared (laughs) to this dystopian imaginary of nuclear catastrophe that so many people (laughs) like to conjure up. Solar is very, very safe. Uh, Wind is very, very safe. But uh, nothing is perfectly safe. And that's the key idea that people need to get across. And so the way that you measure, or one of the ways that you could measure the safety of a particular energy source is simply by looking at how many deaths per kilowatt hour, because nothing is 100% safe. There will be a certain level of, you know, number of deaths, uh, a certain level of morbidity attached to, to everything. You know, what is the one with the lowest? Nuclear is regularly right at the bottom, along with, I think, onshore wind. And you think like, well, what on earth? Why isn't the death count for solar zero? Well, one, again, because nothing has zero uh, risk of death, but also, yeah, I mean, that's one possible way that people could just fall off off roofs. Also, there's an extraction process for the minerals that are used in in solar panels as well. Some of those are highly toxic, cadmium-led, these sorts of things. Again, they're not just used in solar panels, but a range of different uh, renewable sources of electricity. If those are not carefully taken care of across the supply chain, there's going to be some sort of morbidity or even mortality impact there. How do these things stack up proportionately? What is the most dangerous? What is the least dangerous exactly. of these so various that's the, sources? That's the important thing. That's the message that I constantly want to get across to people is we're not looking for uh, an energy source that has zero risk. That does not exist. It cannot exist. What we're looking for is the safest one, not the one that's perfectly safe. It doesn't exist. So, you know, obviously, whatever clean energy source we're talking about, whether we're talking about nuclear or hydroelectricity, solar, wind, all of these are extremely safe for the most part, compared to annual deaths from particulate uh, matter, other sort of forms of air pollution from coal, and even from natural gas, which is still mis- uh, very much cleaner than, than coal. So it's sort of like two levels. You've got fossil fuels and then everything else. Then within everything else, there's varying levels. And nuclear just happens to be, I mean, even taking into account Fukushima, the Fukushima disaster, where zero people died as a result of the nuclear accident there, and Chernobyl, where a few thousand people likely died, even taking into account those, you still get extremely low number of deaths per kilowatt hour for nuclear. Hydroelectricity is an interesting one in that if you exclude, I'm going to mispronounce this because I don't speak Chinese, but a Benchio Dam disaster where I think something like 250,000 people died as a result of collapse of a series of dams, hydroelectricity is incredibly safe. But because of those disasters, its average rate of death per kilowatt hour is actually quite high. But that case, is an example of how looking at one-off spectaculars is not really a good way to Fukushima or Chernobyl, not really good ways to assess the, the risk posed by energy sources. The reason why those dams collapse is because this was the middle of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Engineers were sent off to the field to learn how to be a peasant again, and just complete um, irrationality run across the entire society. And I think a similar situation needs to be considered when we look at Chernobyl, where you know this is a dying Stalinist uh, regime. Uh, you know the economy was failing by this point, so this is not in any way representative of nuclear power in general. In the same way that the Banqiao uh, dammed hydroelectric disasters in China are not in any way representative of, for example, the incredible safety of hydroelectricity in Quebec or in British Columbia. Why do you think these things loom so large in the political imaginary? Because I talk to people who are on the left, and even people who I think are you know, relatively aligned with my pretty narrow set of politics, 
they always bring this up that like uh, nuclear is just far too dangerous. You know, you can't, right. we can't afford the risk, you know, it's more dangerous than other power sources. Is this the result of propaganda? Is it the result of just the way that the human mind grasps onto these stories as narrative? Is it because we have seen movies that memorialize and miniseries that put these right. things very vividly into your imagination? But like, why does that misconception persist so uh, powerfully? I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Basically, there's two two sort of reasons. I mean, it's, it's everything there. Partly, humans in general have a poor capacity for, without, you know, careful statistical training at, you know, so university level, um, have a very poor capacity for statistically accurate risk analysis. It's the same reason nobody thinks anything about taking their car to the airport, but then gets very nervous in the plane. Even though the plane <laughs> is, you know, sure, sure. many orders of magnitude safer than the car that you drove to get to the airport. So th that's that's part of it. Human psychology as well. I think that we, uh, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. You want to speak to a psychologist to get some real expertise. In this. I would say just very crudely that I think we're very, very attracted to the idea of spectaculars rather than rigorously, quantitatively thinking through the risk of deaths per kilowatt hour, for example. The idea of uh, Chernobyl, the idea of Fukushima, just like a, a plane crash, is very, very attractive, sticks in our mind. But the, the very boring data doesn't produce as much emotional response. Having said that, I don't want to be sort of anti-humanist and say that humans aren't rational. I think we have incredible capacity for rationality. I, what, all I'm saying here is in the excluding people who've engaged in you know, university-level statistical training. I mean, you know, taking a couple of like, undergraduate courses in statistics should be just about enough for you to be able to grok this sort of stuff. Uh, but I would also say, in addition to this, you're not wrong that uh, there is you know, a set of people who have an interest in nuclear not being you know, one of the most successful, if not the most successful, or widely spread uh, source of um, electricity. I would say that the fossil fuel sector in the 1970s, very early on, recognized that wind and solar on their own posed no threat to them whatsoever because of their intermittency, their variability, but nuclear absolutely did. You know, you don't need to go into any sort of conspiracy theorizing, you just need to look at the information that the natural gas sector in particular has been very happy to sponsor a number of environmental groups that are focused on a sort of 100% renewable or 100% variable renewable approach. But in addition to that, I think there's also something that's happened on the, on the left since the 1970s, 1980s, where there's been a move away from a left that was fundamentally based within the industrial working class and other sectors of the working class. The industrial working class is not the only group of people who are workers, but historically it was a very, very large part of the left. And just that sort of formal and tacit knowledge that you have as a blue-collar worker, as an industrial worker, about energy systems, about transport systems, about agriculture, bleeds into your understanding of how to change the world politically. And in the 1970s, 1980s, as a result of the neoliberal revolution, crushing the trade union movement in the United States and the UK in particular, but right across the West, there was a retreat on the part of the sort of intellectuals within the left from the being based within the working class or allied to them, to the academy, to uh, media, to NGOs, to non-governmental organizations. And there's nothing, again, there's nothing wrong with that. But what we don't want is a left that is entirely based in that very small sliver of the working class, and in many respects, quite more middle class. You want a left that is fully representative of the entirety of the class that has that sort of institutional industrial knowledge that can discipline people amongst the intellectual class that when they come up with sort of flights of fancy around variable renewables, that disciplining of the knowledge of these industrial systems. And then in addition to that, you have the green pieces and friends of the earth and these sort of the Sierra clubs and so on and so forth that... Their sort of ecosystem, their financial ecosystem, it's not fair to say that they're sort of market-oriented, but they're certainly oriented towards billionaire foundations, attracting money to keep going. They have an interest in speaking to the, sort of the, the shibboleths of that community. That, I think, also undermines the commitment to an evidence-based approach. So, for example, if a friend of mine, I won't mention, mention their name, but a friend of mine worked for a fairly large green NGO in the UK a number of years ago. They don't anymore. But at the time, there was a lot of discussion around colony collapse disorder with bees. This was incredibly sexy as an idea because you know, people love bees. You know, you have a, a close-up photograph of them, they're cuddly, or you think they, they kind of look like little teddy bears <laughs> that can sting. And teddy bears can sting. But anyway, the marketing department of this environmental NGO said, you know, we've got to go all in 
on promoting like a campaign against neonicotinoid pesticides. And the, the scientists within the, the organization said, hold on a sec. I mean, that group of pesticides may be partially responsible for this, but the science isn't fully in yet. Hmm. And the marketing department said, doesn't matter. We just got to go all in because this is going to be great for fundraising. Oh, boy. Yeah, people, love, <laughs> people love honeybees. My friend was really like this. It was really severely disillusioning for them. This venerable organization that he had committed, not just his career, but, you know, really believed in, uh, was driven as much by money, by the market, become a sort of self-licking ice cream cone. In the same way that a corporation like an oil company or a natural gas company, regardless of the scientific evidence, wants to continue to produce its commodity. Otherwise, it's a threat to their profits. In this case, to pay attention to the scientific evidence or to wait until the scientific evidence was in would be a threat to their continued existence as an organization. That makes an unfortunate amount of sense. And I think a lot of the topics that we've covered on this channel in the last two, three years doing this have to do with this drift of the left from maybe an earlier iteration in the 20th century. Decisively after neoliberalism, it becomes more and more pronounced that it is an organization of experts and professors and uh, people of generally middle-class interests. And in, in many cases, institutions, when they become dysfunctional, exist to preserve themselves rather than to solve the problem. Exactly. That's exactly it. Within the broad sweep of socialism, Trotskyism in particular, I think, I mean, it has many, many problems, but I think one of its uh, strongest contributions to theory is its analysis of bureaucracy. It wasn't enough for us to denounce the gulags, the abrogation of civil liberties in the Soviet Union, it was Germany, and so on and so forth. Uh, we had to have an explanation as why that happened. Hmm. And theory of bureaucratization, you know, developed uh, mainly by Trotskyists to try to explain that, has subsequently been adopted much more widely in society, within academia and society as a well, whole, to try to explain why bureaucracies emerge in the civil service, in the public sector, also within large corporations. What happened there was that those Trotsky theorists tried to have a, a materialist analysis that they turned on themselves. They tried, applied Marxism to themselves. And I think we need to be doing exactly the same thing today to look at the bureaucratization of the left. There are a lot of people out there doing some great work critiquing parts of the left, whether it's a sort of extreme identity politics or postmodern uh, relativism, or in my case, where I'm trying to look at sort of eco-austerity. It's not enough just to critique it. We have to say, well, what was the cause of that? What, was the, what were the material conditions that gave rise to, I would say, the sort of bureaucratization? And in this case, I think it's that. The neoliberal revolution that broke the power of the working class and the institutions in particular, like trade unions, sent the left scurrying off to redoubts of academia, media, and NGOs that have their own bureaucratic set of interests that overlaps with, but it's not always allied to that of the class as a whole. Yeah, a separation between, we should say, maybe the professional managerial class and the working class that's is this right. wedge that's I right mean, down I, the left, very pronounced at the moment. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I take some of the critiques of the term professional managerial class very seriously. I sure. get that it's under-theorized. I get that the, the, the name professional managerial class is problematic. But we use the term PMC, professional managerial class, or what Thomas Piketty describes as the Brahmin left, or yes. it, that basic conception, I think, is correct. Well, this is what I find very curious about this topic, is that I've done numerous interviews with young people who have become politicized on social media. They listen to uh, the Jacobin channel, some of them. I happen to be wearing the hat today on yeah. the podcast. Uh, they also listen to people from the left, from the center, from all over the spectrum. And in those interviews, in the content that they're consuming, it seems like nuclear power is a relatively popular option on the center-right, but it's very, very unpopular on the center-left to the ultra-left. And I, I kind of feel like we're in this moment where there are certain issues that have been the contours of this political divide are just drawn in the wrong place. Because so much of your writing, and I think the case that the statistics present very clearly, is that to maximize human flourishing and humanity on the face of this planet, it's going to be necessary to have uh, nuclear as a majority of the energy mix. It doesn't have to be all of it. There's uh, many, many different factors that contribute sure. to that. But why do you think, let's say in, there's popular books, Naomi Klein in particular comes to mind with some really uh, outrageous, I think, statements based on nuclear power, continuing a legacy yeah. of colonialism and white supremacy and things like this. Yeah. How has that conflation happened? And, and why does that represent common sense on the political left right now? I would say that I think that the older generation of the left, uh, opposition to nuclear power is just a shibboleth. They've been brought up with this set of ideas. 
in many respects in the 1960s, it was conflated uh, with nuclear weapons. And so a lot of people, particularly boomers, uh, they conflate nuclear energy with nuclear weapons, even though they're as distinct from each other as they are from nuclear medicine. And nobody campaigns against nuclear medicine. So, I mean, I think that's part of it. Uh, But I would also say that there's a lot of younger progressives and a lot of socialists as well and trade unionists who are very in favor of nuclear power. I would also say that uh, one should distinguish between the left and the trade union movement. In this case, where the trade union movement, particularly with the industrial trade unions, are very much more tend to be in favor of, of nuclear power as they are in favor of carbon capture and storage, hydraulic fracturing, geothermal, advanced geothermal systems. They support continued aviation, whereas the left, green left tends to be, we have to phase out aviation and replace it with high-speed rail. We should make a distinction between one part of the left and another part of the left, sort of partial generational distinction there, and also distinction between the sort of more academic-focused left and the more industrial left or industrial working class. So there's a distinction there as well. And then finally, even amongst older leftists, this is changing rapidly. In the last five to 10 years, a lot of work has been done by progressives and, and some centrists, to be very fair, and even some conservatives, to put out the facts about uh, nuclear energy. And that is, that's, that's, that's winning a lot of people. To the point now that you know, some surveys in Canada and the United States, I think, put support for nuclear energy in a majority a majority of Generation Z, or Z as you call it in the United States, um, <laughs> like I think a, a bare majority are now in favor of nuclear power. Um, and I think there's a plurality of uh, millennials. So things are changing rapidly there. Well, well, people people who are maybe not familiar with these topics are going to be hearing you talk about some kind of Gen Z far off in the future sci-fi utopia that doesn't actually exist. And I don't think that people are generally familiar with the existing uh, infrastructure in France. Would you describe maybe the Mesner, Mesmer plan? Am I saying that yeah, correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah and, right. and their decarbonization, which was a rather successful experiment, which has been running yeah. for decades now. Um, just for people who have never encountered that before, would you just explain what that process looked like and how successful it was? It was the fastest decarbonization in history. About, you know, you should check the numbers, but about 70% of their electricity generation comes from nuclear power. There's a medium-sized chunk of hydroelectricity, and then there's a smidge of some fossil in there as well. This was done from about the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s, so about, it's about a decade. Extraordinarily rapid build-out of clean, uh, clean energy. France didn't do it for climate change reasons uh, in the mid-1970s. While some people within academia were aware of, of, of climate change, the full threat of it, it would wait until the 1980s before we really understood it. Why did they do it then? They did it as a result of the oil crisis, the 1973 oil crisis, and they wanted to get off oil. So even if the rationale may have been not for climate change reasons, but nevertheless, it was still uh, one of the fastest decarbonization efforts. It was the fastest, sorry, in in, in history. The other top five mostly include uh, nuclear or hydro or some combination of nuclear and hydro. So Ontario was really, really rapid as well. They already had a good base of nuclear and hydroelectricity. But they also had a very large chunk of coal. And just basically with a snap of their fingers, they eliminated their remaining coal-fired power plants. I think there were 14 units. Check that number. And uh, the slack was entirely picked up by, or almost entirely picked up by nuclear. There is some solar and some wind and that grid as well. But the bulk of the slack was picked up by nuclear. Yeah, I guess I would say one last thing on this in that, uh, going back to your point before about optimistic mix, uh, suggesting that I favor like a majority nuclear, it really depends. I think people really need to get away from a, a situation where they're thinking that there is an optimum mix, which is exactly the same in all locations. Your geography sure. completely conditions what is viable in your location. In British Columbia, where I live, we have a 98% renewable grid, but it's 98% uh, hydroelectricity. Most of that are large dams which means it's incredibly dependable. It's dispatchable. We will see some threats to that over the course of this century as the, the glacier-fed dams begin to lose their glaciers as a result of global warming. But thankfully, most of our dams are precipitation-fed, not glacier-fed. Um, and also, there's a lot more evaporation from the reservoirs. But at the moment, I mean, if anybody says, I'm totally opposed to 100% renewals, you know, that's bullshit. I live in a, a location where the entire grid, almost the entire grid is renewals, but it's a very reliable form of, of renewables. I would absolutely be opposed to 
efforts at a 100% variable renewables like wind and solar. But I mean, I would say that in South Australia, California, the Sahara, Spain, places where there is fantastic solar insulation, solar can play a really big part there. You've got to adapt your mix to your location. You're never going to have a huge amount of, of hydroelectricity in the prairies, which are completely flat. But in the prairies, there's a lot of uh, wind potential. So you know, wind's going to play a much larger part of the mix there. The point being is that one should right-size variable renewables, not demonize them or celebrate them as like what we should do everywhere in every location. In many locations, a very large proportion of the mix probably should be nuclear, mainly for its, its adaptability, its flexibility. It's not just about production of electricity. It's also about production of high quality. Uh, high temperature heat, and there are uh, industrial sectors that need that high quality, high temperature heat that renewable, variable renewables and renewables in general are just very bad at, at delivering. Uh, so in many respects, nuclear power is sort of the Swiss army knife of clean energy in that it can do more things for more sectors than almost any other clean energy source. I think over history, the course of human history, we've steadily moved from very diffuse forms of energy, more chaotic forms of energy, through to ever more dense forms of fuel, and it's the densest we have. So moving further in that direction offers us a greater amount of wealth, which in turn allows for a greater capacity to deliver an egalitarian society, expands our degrees of freedom, allows us to produce new technologies, new medicines, do a lot more science, and so on and so forth. So I would say that in many respects, energy is a sort of rough proxy for wealth, because all that energy is is the ability to do work. We have a greater energy density from the fuel. There's a greater amount of energy that we have. There's a greater amount of work that we can do. It is much more feasible for us to build a socialist, egalitarian society and to expand our freedom. Well, that's that's what I thought I was signing up for when I got interested in socialism as a, a young man. But it seems today a lot of people are in the business of telling people what they can't have, like they can't yeah. fly and they can't have hamburgers. And um, I definitely have a lot of questions about meat for later on. But on this topic of the energy mix and the real examples of what is currently in place in Europe, France has been getting approximately 70% of their energy for, let's say, like the past 40 years from nuclear. It seems like there's a very pronounced movement of climate activists, Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, people of this nature, that are active in the UK and in Germany, where I don't hear them proposing nuclear. I hear them saying to stop oil. I'm not just picking a difference with the particular slogan that they use, but I think the energy mix and the future that they are advocating for is, I think, broadly unpopular to most people. The scenarios range in a quite radical gradation of like scaling down consumption by 75% and really, I think, really extreme measures that would result mm -hmm. in some cases of people living in tenement-like buildings and like extreme scarcity of resources and uh, meet a few times a year and certainly not maintaining the quality of life, which was, I think, integral to any part of flourishing uh, left vision from earlier in the 20th century, maybe just to get a baseline for this stuff. Do you feel like there's a concise or a clear vision of what some of these environmental activists, particularly in Europe, are proposing? What is the future that they are that they envision and they're advocating for? I would say, I mean, this is the argument I made in my first book, uh, Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts. The vision that they, you're not wrong to say that it does vary. So one should be very, very clear. There are some that are a lot more extreme than other ones. But in general, they take an approach that is broadly Malthusian. That is to say that they, they uh, embrace a politics of limits. That we already have enough stuff. If anything, we have too much. And that we need to uh, retreat from that. Traditionally, Malthusianism discusses overpopulation as the primary problem. But it follows on from that, that if you have too many people consuming too much stuff, that we will exceed hard planetary limits, ecological boundaries. And so we have to retreat from that. The degrowth community varies in their approach to overpopulation. Some say that, that overpopulation is a problem as well as overconsumption. Other ones say, no, it's just overconsumption. And they're, they're aware that, or they're alert to the critique, the historic leftist critique of Malthusianism and the overpopulation discourse being very associated with uh, so racism and colonialism, imperialism, basically a discussion of, oh, there's so many brown people in Calcutta. Isn't that terrible? And we, we, need to, we need to stop them at the border because if they come to the United States or Canada or Britain, 
they will adopt our terrible lifestyles of overconsumption. And, you know, the Sierra Club, Friends of the Earth, a lot of these organizations in the United States and Britain are in the 1960s through to the 1980s, even as late as the 1990s, had huge battles within them over whether to adopt positions of, you know, close the border, very, very, what we'd say today, very Trumpian perspective. Hmm. But actually it comes from what one would otherwise think of as sort of progressive sources. I guess that's sort of the broad conception. The the left historically has opposed this, uh, saying that there's no such thing as a scarcity. That I mean, you can go back to to Friedrich Engels writing in uh, Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific. He says, you know, it's famous critique of Malthus saying the one thing that he doesn't understand is, is science, and science is potentially infinite. What took five ingots of steel to produce uh, ten years ago, you only uh, take one ingot of steel to produce. We are constantly developing efficiencies. And now, capitalism left to its own devices doesn't necessarily can produce this, but only if it's profitable. And this is one of the reasons that why we require economic planning, um, regulation, funding of um, research and development to take uh, emerging technologies that are at the moment insufficiently profitable or not profitable uh, through to commercialization, that, that sort of stuff. The historic left critique of Malthusian arguments around the environment has argued that. It's the market that causes uh, environmental problems, where if we discover that there is a commodity that is harmful ecologically, it undermines ecosystem services upon which humans depend, the firm that is producing that commodity has an incentive to continue to produce it. And at the same time, if there is some commodity or there's some good or service that is a benefit, ecological benefit to us, but is insufficiently profitable, to be produced. It won't be produced. So there's this double side of the problem with, with markets. And then on top of that, particularly with respect to climate change, there's the additional problem of markets is that it doesn't coordinate things very, very well. And so there may be a need for some level of state planning to coordinate as we reduce our consumption of oil and we increase our the number of electric vehicles. For example, here, there will be a glut of oil. So suddenly oil is very cheap and that will encourage people to go back to internal combustion engines. And so you need some sort of regulatory or otherwise planning uh, mechanism to, to coordinate these different sectors, both transport and oil production, to carefully sunset that industry. That's just one. So in all of these different cases, there's an already existing socialist critique explaining the causes of environmental problems. We don't need to embrace Malthusianism. And so long as we embrace Malthusianism of its various different flavors, we're distracting from the conversation we should be having about the problem of markets and the role of economic planning in overcoming these, these challenges. There are lots of examples throughout history of environmental problems that we faced, um, even existential ones, such as the hole in the ozone layer. It was as big an issue in the news as climate change is today in the 1980s. And if anything, it was a much more rapidly advancing threat. And much more genuinely existential in the sense that a radical deterioration of the ozone layer genuinely threatened macroscopic terrestrial life and even macroscopic life in the first few meters of the oceans. So this was much worse, much greater a threat to human life and the biosphere than even the worst projections of what climate change could produce. And yet that's the problem is, is today all but solved by the middle of the century. The ozone layer should be properly healed. And that was a, not a result of people using any fewer cans of hairspray or uh, having fewer fridges or any of the other sort of resources that make use of uh, chlorofluorocarbons, which was the cause of the, uh, the hole in the ozone layer. Instead, it was a result of international regulation, the Montreal Protocol, that forced companies to technology switch away from chlorofluorocarbons to chemicals that did not produce that, that same effect. And at the same time, to publicly fund the tech, the research and development and, and sort of produce the, the commercialization of those technologies. So once again, what solved this huge existential and environmental threat in the 1980s was not degrowth, control of population. It was classic social democratic economic planning on a pretty you know vast scale, on a global scale. So this is where it gets interesting and ideological, because I think you are in favor of uh, very similar social democratic politics as I am, and you want to see a state that is flourishing and has powerful institutions that are controlled by the working class. And I think there's a brand or a, some type of ideological group that is very anti-state, but has left-wing politics. And mm -hmm. so for them, there's also, they want to prevent the formation of a state that would be capable of that type of planning, 
right? And that's one of the reasons why they prefer things like solar or wind that can, you could basically have your autonomous uh, commune that lives somewhere off the grid and be self-sufficient. Then I see those same people deploy rhetoric that is in many cases like severely exaggerated, very like literally untrue. The scientists disagree with it, but they claim science is saying that there's going to be a slaughter of billions of people in the next, uh, let's just give an insane made up time frame, the next 30 seconds if we don't immediately get off of fossil fuels or whatever. And there's a few instances of this that are really pronounced. You mentioned in your piece for Compact Magazine that there was a profile in the Times of uh, one of these guys involved with the voluntary human extinction movement, which is fucking insane. Um, There's also quite a storied history of Extinction Rebellion using dramatically exaggerated statistics that the group yeah. has uh, had their own infighting about. I would recommend people listen to the episode with Zion Lights from Interdependence. She's amazing. Maybe, yeah, yeah. She's done some really I fantastic work. I was actually about to, to reference her uh, to say that, you know, we should be very clear that not everybody, uh, not all Extinction Rebellion, uh, she left the organization precisely because of its, one, because of its opposition to nuclear power, and two, because of, you know, she's a trained science communicator. She was horrified to find that she had to be defending blatant BS, uh, blatant exaggeration about the scale of the threat of climate change, which, which is severe and real. Uh, but it's not as bad as you know. Roger Hallam, one of the co-founders of, of Extinction Rebellion, had said on the BBC uh, that you know, yeah, as you were saying a few seconds ago, that seven billion people or six billion people would die by mid-century. There's no, there's no evidence for that. So she left as well because they just weren't paying attention to the science. I got in a lot of trouble recently. I was in this conference in Germany talking at a few different museums. This is very inward-facing art critic expertise institutions trying to figure out like what to do with their program, how to respond to today's political chaos, what platforms are just doing to culture, very large topics. Frequently within that nearly two-week conference, this question of climate activists attacking artworks uh, arose, as you might imagine. So this is uh, maybe a month ago. We're going back a little bit in time here. But um, I got in some trouble saying that these people were maybe the unwitting foot soldiers for some different political interests. And I feel like there's a possibility to advance social democratic politics that will ensure a level of material well-being for most people in the society. But then there's this other vision, which is massively scaling down a narco-liberal utopian anarchist thing, which is, I I don't think that the people are intentionally doing this. So what we see with the advance of these radical green parties in uh, parliamentary coalitions is that they're always voting in favor of the neoliberal austerity hawks, that they're, they're like, they are actually literally part of the same political bloc. Um, So I see like young activists who really do want to make a difference, but their political imagination is being emotionally hijacked. They've become like the unwitting spokespeople for the interests that are, in many cases, just causing the problem to begin with. But um, many examples of, of this. So I feel like I wanted to give some extra context to that because I I didn't necessarily support the statement as I made it, but I feel like the attention economy activist stunts that we're seeing, they're unwittingly advancing the interests of the people who are the source of the problem. They're they're saying just stop oil, but they're not saying invest in alternative energy. They're not saying to preserve a quality of life for most people that would exist in a social democratic society or anything like this. Right. There's a, okay. There's a lot in there, Josh. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't want to give you too easy. <laughs> so first, first of all, I would say that their perspective that we all consume too much, you, you have to come from a certain level of privilege to be able to think that all Western workers you know, across Europe and the United States, Canada, Australia, Japan, that we all consume too much because the reality all of is those that, mothers during the pandemic that couldn't get infant formula were consuming way too much. Way These too people much. are very exactly. privileged. Yeah. How dare they? So for 40, you know, for 40 years, you know, since the Reagan and, and Thatcher revolutions, that neoliberal revolution, many workers in many sectors across the West have suffered through deindustrialization, stagnating wages, growing inequality, growing precarity. Many in the United States in particular live from paycheck to paycheck. It's, I mean, I, I, I get quite angry about this. Too. Like, how dare they say that we all consume too much? Who the hell is this we? What I would like to see is a lot of workers, all workers, to be able to consume a lot more and an end to austerity. That they will respond and say, oh, but we're going we're gonna to increase public health care and public transport and public education and university and college will be free. 
Well, across a lot of the West, that's uh, outside of the United States, at least, that's already the case. We already have uh, free healthcare in Canada. We already have, in many places, uh, there's a lot of public transport in Europe. In Germany, university education is free. So what is this extra stuff? If you are on a picket line and you're fighting for higher wages and uh, you've got all this, these public services, yes, they have been cut back considerably in most Western countries, again, since the 1980s, nevertheless. If you win an increase in your wages, what do you want to be spending that money on? Do you want to be spending it on more healthcare, more education, more travel? No, you, you want a nicer life. You want more holidays. You want more stuff. Stuff is, there's nothing wrong with stuff. In the Soviet Union, the most trenchant internal critiques of that system from the people, from the workers in that system was that why is it that we see on television that in the United States you can have jeans with zippers that work? Why is it that uh, <laughs> uh, they, have, they have fridges and, and, and microwaves and we don't? We want bread, but we want roses too. And, you know, sure, in a much more rational society, a social society, probably is the case that we would not have exactly the same kind of soap uh, marketed in blue steel and, and gray and black uh, packaging to market to the men in the family, and then pink and lavender, and exactly the same soap marketed to the women in the family so that the, the soap producers can sell twice as much soap to the same household. Sure, absolutely. I'm sure that, that sort of thing, we would not be engaged in that sort of irrationality. However, those consumer items along those lines, the impact that they have with respect to greenhouse gas emissions, is just, it's a rounding error compared to the, the vast majority of carbon emissions that come from heating houses, from necessary transportation from industrial production is so absolutely socially necessary from the electricity to power schools and, and hospitals to power the ventilators and diastasis machines and incubators in those hospitals. That's really where the bulk of greenhouse gas emissions comes from. The consumer items that we may or may not agree are necessary for flourishing society, it's a tiny, uh, tiny proportion. So, so what this does is it produces a really bad theory of change. It thinks that we have climate change because a, a group of dastardly oil and gas and coal companies are imposing unnecessary commodities upon us. It is true that the market retards the speed with which we can transition away from those energy sources to cleaner ones. But the reality is that fossil fuels it's it's a complicated history. They produced enormous expansion of wealth uh, over the last 150, 200 years, uh, particularly last 50 years. The problem is that they also come with this negative uh, aspect of climate change. And so we have to carefully switch away to other uh, sources of energy. But there are other aspects as well. And this is where the story about cement comes in. There are a number of sectors that produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions that are very socially necessary. Clearly, we need cement to produce houses, uh, lots of infrastructure, hospitals, schools, and so on and so forth. Those high-speed rails that everybody's excited about, you need cement to support that infrastructure. But we don't actually have any way to decarbonize the bulk of emissions from that sector. There's a few sort of lab bench technologies that claim to be, and probably are, carbon neutral or even carbon negative, but they only uh, can decarbonize small proportions of the cement sector. So we have this, this situation where this is both absolutely socially necessary and we just don't really know what to do about it. So it isn't as simple as a commodity that evil mustache twiddling villains are imposing on the rest of us. It's, <laughs> it's really good, but also really bad at the same time. And it's just really hard to sort out. And so that's why I was furious about this group of like 200 climate activists in, um, in France that went uh, and sabotaged, basically destroyed. A, uh, a cement manufacturer in, um, I think it was near Marseille in France. And like, I'm sure the company is doing all sorts of dastardly stuff with respect to, you know, water pollution uh, along those lines as well. Um, I'm certainly not any sort of defender of that company, but I, w I wish those, those activists comprehended that we just don't have an easy solution at the moment. And going in and sabotaging this, this factory, the cement factory. Okay, so if we applied that tactic to all the cement uh, manufacturers in the world got rid of all cement. How are we going to build houses? How are we going to build all the public housing that you claim to want? Mm -hmm. This is really, really hard. And in this case, you know, some of these uh, sort of lab bench technologies for clean cement, let's see what we can do to support those. And in that case, what we really need is, is economic planning in the form of industrial policy to take these uh, nascent emerging technologies through to commercialization, perhaps some regulation. 
I kind of suspect that we may just need some carbon capture and storage to take that socially necessary atmospheric carbon uh, out of the air and and mineralize it, to bury it deep in in the geosphere. And again, carbon capture and storage, particularly direct air capture and and carbon mineralization, these are very emerging technologies, very nascent technologies that, again, need some very strong industrial policy, some economic planning. So there's, once again, there's a really clear pathway for what the left should be doing in this case. And instead, these idiots, sorry, (laughs) ignorant about about, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions in in this particular sector, are wasting the, I don't know, three hours a week that it takes to organize something like that over a series of months. If they had spent that time instead building a campaign for industrial policy in France to, to support direct air capture and carbon mineralization, to support clean cement for those sectors where it, that it can decarbonize. You know, we would be so much further in decarbonizing the sector than this, this grand day out where I'm sure they all had a great time, but uh, were actively harmful to the, the process of decarbonization. So it's about a theory of change. And it's not simply a matter, I'm going back to this question about social democracy. Like, yes, I, I'm a social democrat in the streets and a socialist in the sheets. I my grand dream is to get ever like recognizing the fundamental problem of markets that there is a gap between what society wants and what is in the interest of the producer of a commodity in the market. That's that's, that's irresolvable. So I want to go be able to go as far as we can in decommodifying as many sectors as we can. I don't know how far we can go. I'm hopeful that we can go all the way, but I I, I hypothesize that maybe that might be possible. And this is my sort of like grand unified theory of social of socialism or democratic socialism, social democracy, market socialism, and even sex, some sections of liberalism, where like we're getting on a bus and we're getting on that bus because we know that markets are problematic. We don't know what the terminus of that bus is, but we want to go as far as we can. And maybe the, the liberals will get off before the social democrats and the social democrats will get off before the socialists and the socialists will get off before the anarchists or whatever, and how far they want to go or think they could be, to be gone. But we all should, are on that bus together. And the activists that are breaking up, that are sabotaging uh, cement plants and that are calling for the Western working class to suffer through 40 years of, of austerity just aren't even on that bus. Right. Well, this is okay. So I have a big question then about neoliberalism. One of the reasons why I really admire your work and I take your work very seriously is because you care about the calculation debate. Yeah. And this is in the the deep weeds of internet subcultures that are constantly at war with each other. These questions are uh, vigorous debates. People actively talk about them. Most people who grew up in relatively mainstream politics probably don't know what we're talking yeah. about right yeah. now. So we're rehashing something from the 20th century where socialists and liberals disagreed about price signals, market coordination, and you have yeah. Hayek on one side and uh, essentially like the monetarist counter-revolution, which resulted in neoliberalism is because they wanted won this intellectual argument about how you were supposed to organize the economy, which overturned the prevailing Keynesian consensus that what the state was supposed to do is counter cyclical spending and all the rest of this. But now let me let me try and sketch this out. So tell me if you agree, but we're 40 years into this experiment. Neoliberalism has not restored the profitability that it was supposed to create. Uh, We've been in a perpetual crisis of profitability since Thatcher and Reagan and so on. And so now at this point, we are ripe to reevaluate what neoliberalism promised versus what it delivered. And I think we are standing on good grounds to to refuse some of that theoretical argument that won over the intellectuals of the previous era that then resulted in neoliberalism. We don't actually have a solution to the calculation debate at large, but we do know that neoliberalism did not actually result in what it said it was going to do. So we can push back against those things with, I think, the agreement of most people on the left and and the right, you know, uh, most reasonable people, I should say. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we have the perfect solution for democratic socialism or utopian fully automated luxury communism or anything like this. But we can very easily say social democracy yielded better, more profitable conditions, more human flourishing than neoliberalism. And we stand a better uh, case to decarbonize and, and whatever. So even on the grounds I think this is the best type of argument to make if you're trying to win people over. Even from the grounds of liberalism, you can make a pretty strong argument for what the socialists want anyway. 
Uh, so this metaphor of people getting on the bus and then getting off at various stops, and maybe I'm kind of analogizing this to a um, majoritarian democracy where most people will be voting in favor of something. And then as that support wanes, then, you know, we, we lose people along the way. And that's, you know, I would hope that bus goes uh, rather far, but at least we know the bus uh, needs to get out of the neoliberalism zone fair for right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's a, that's a really good encapsulation of, of what happened. I, I would like tweak it just slightly. I would say that the the winners of the the conservative or liberal winners of the socialist calculation debate, sometimes called an economic calculation debate, it wasn't so much that their ideas caused the neoliberal revolution. There was a crisis of profitability uh, within the post-war Keynesian consensus uh, economies of, of the United States and Western Europe, and this set of ideas buttressed a series of political uh, attacks by uh, elites on the working class and trade unions in an attempt to restore profitability. So it was the material conditions that made use of those ideas rather than those ideas causing the material conditions of of neoliberalism. You're absolutely right that uh, in 2008, we saw globally that the winners of the, uh, the economic calculation debate were wrong to some extent in that there did need to be some sort of planning, some the return of the state, return of um, of of, a, yeah, of an interventionist state, from the, the nationalization of uh, the World Bank of Scotland to the quantitative easing to the range of uh, actions that the European Central Bank took, some of them which continued a neoliberalism in other forms and austerity, but nevertheless, it couldn't be neoliberalism, neoliberal business as usual. And today we see, again, with respect to uh, climate policy in the United States, that the Inflation Reduction Act which has many, many problems. It is primarily focused on tax credits as a way to plan the clean transition, rather than, as I would prefer, the sort of policy approach that did occur during the, the original New Deal with the Tennessee Valley Authority uh, and, and so on, where the state actively intervened. There's been a, a fundamental break with uh, neoliberal business as usual. That 40-year experiment of the market notes best which is, you're right to say, is a product of the the socialist calculation debate. So what we need to be doing at the moment is leaning into that conversation that all of society is happening, where almost everybody recognizes now, even Republicans recognize that the state has to intervene. You know, Marco Rubio, a few years ago, came up with a, a white paper where he talked about how the United States needs to engage in much more state intervention in order to compete against China, because China does so much state intervention. Now, he's arguing love for, to see it. for militarism, <laughs> and so forth, but nevertheless, he gets the fact that markets left to their own devices do not perform what society wants. So what we need to be doing at the moment is really leaning into that, that revival of a conversation about the economic calculation debate. Our book, I hope, played a huge role in revitalizing that conversation on the left, where there had been a lot of activism-ism. As I think uh, Baskar Sankar, the publisher of Jacobin Magazine, called it a few years ago in a great essay, where it's all about the activism and there's not a lot of theorizing about, about the economy, about economic planning, the questions around market socialism versus economic planning. Who's um, your market socialist guy? Do you have a model that you prefer compared to the others? Well, I, I mean, I'm more of a critic of it. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I would say that I think that. So we have actually had uh, actually existing market socialism in Yugoslavia and to some extent Hungary. And the fundamental problem that you have there is that, sure, even if you do away with the bosses, and absolutely I accept the caveat that Yugoslavia under Marshall Tito was not a particularly um, civil libertarian uh, entity. So there's that aspect as well, for sure. Nevertheless, um, and we write about this in, um, me and my co-author write about this in People's Republic of Walmart. If you had a a workers' co-op oil company, they would have an interest in continuing to produce that yes, oil. Yes, they would. <laughs> lobby against any regulations against it. Of course. Uh, and the, same way. The, the fundamental critique of markets mounted by uh, socialists, by Marxists, historically, and the advocates of, of socialist planning is, is this, is that it doesn't actually matter whether that factory is owned by a single boss, a family, a group of shareholders, workers, a workers' co-op, or even a state, if it is still producing a commodity that is sold in a market, it has an interest in continuing the production of that commodity. So, I mean, a great example here is Norway. Um, Stat, they changed the name a few years ago. I can't remember what it's called now. But anyway, the state oil company, state oil and gas company, they also produce hydroelectricity. You know, this is the, the fundamental economic foundation of, of Norwegian social democracy, which is great that the people benefit from the profits of oil and gas production rather than uh, shareholders. Wonderful stuff. 
At the same time, Norway, in effect, is acting like a company in a mar- market that has an interest in continuing the production of oil and gas. And they're really caught between a rock and a hard place because the people know that they can't keep doing this. But at the same time, this is where the bulk of their, their money comes from. So there isn't a way out of that outside of sort of global um, economic planning of the oil and gas sector. And of course, that's not on the table anytime soon. So we have to sort of grope towards those sort of things in, in the meantime. Uh, but this is why even the, the most radical socialist planner, the day after they come to power, there would still be large sectors of the economy that would have to be engaging in production on a market basis. Now, that government would certainly want as much of that market sector to be cooperatively controlled as possible. Likewise, every market socialist I know absolutely recognizes that there are great swathes of the economy that should be publicly owned. They absolutely agree that education, healthcare, and many, many other sectors should just be wholesale taken in the public sector. There should be no market aspect whatsoever. So on, let's say, day two after the election of your market socialists or your socialist planners, what does that society look like? It's exactly the same. Both of them have a large (laughs) public sector and both of them have a large market cooperative sector. So I think the conversation instead should be, rather than the confidence that some socialist planners have asserting that we can plan the entirety of the global economy with zero role for prices, zero role for markets, we should be saying, we hope that that is the case, but we don't know. That's our hypothesis. Likewise, the market socialists should be saying, we suspect that it isn't, but we recognize that there's a fundamental problem with markets and it doesn't matter who the ownership group is, whether it's uh, bosses, families, shareholders, or workers, or the state, if it's in the market, it's still this disconnect. Once you both sides recognize that, the arguments between uh, market socialists and socialist planners begin to disappear. I just have to say, I'm such a huge fan of your work, and it's been such uh, an incredible impact on my own thinking politically, but also in terms of like sketching political imaginaries and my artwork and uh, education and so on. Yeah, what do you have coming up next, and where can people find your new stuff? Hopefully, by the end of January, I'm going to be launching a Substack. Looking at all these sorts of questions, one could describe it as sort of left eco modernism, but I think it's a little bit broader than that. The other thing that I've been writing a lot about in the last few years is the problem of having private pharmaceutical production, not just pandemics, but uh, antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance more broadly. So I want to begin looking at the good Anthropocene from a democratic socialist, social democratic perspective, a much more classically socialist uh, look at these questions and try to win as many progressives and and leftists away from eco-austerity and a revival of a sort of trade union focused, industrial focused uh, sort of strategy. Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a real blast. More again soon. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Patreon, Substack, or channel. Find me on socials at Joshua Citarella on Instagram or Twitter. This is a listener-supported show. I don't do any advertising, so your support is really what keeps this project going. Thanks for listening, and hope to see you again soon.